Good evening. The COVID-19 relief bill advances, but the $15 minimum wage is in doubt. A deputy in Florida is cleared in the brutal shooting of a farm worker and Governor Cuomo's sexual harassment problem. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Monday, March 1st, 2021. A Paris court found French former President Nicolas Sarkozy guilty of corruption and influence peddling on Monday and sentenced him to a year in prison. The 66-year-old Sarkozy, who can do his time in home confinement, says he plans to appeal the sentence. He was convicted of trying to bribe a magistrate in exchange for information about a legal case in which he was implicated. The court found that Sarkozy and his co-defendants sealed a pact of corruption based on consistent and serious evidence. While Sarkozy showed no emotion at his sentencing, his wife, Carla Bruni, posted a message on Instagram. What insane harassment, my love, she wrote. The fight goes on. Truth will see the light. On Monday, a letter signed by 31 House Democrats, led by Representatives Jimmy Panetta and Ted Lieu, was sent to President Joseph Biden, requesting that he consider modifying the decision-making process the United States uses in its command and control of nuclear forces. Representative Panetta tweeted, Vesting a single person with nuclear authority entails real risks. It's time to install additional checks and balances into the system. The exact process is classified, but the president doesn't have the ability to physically launch the weapons himself. But once the decision is made, the system is designed to move quickly, especially if it's believed the country is under attack. Several close calls have been reported, including an incident where a nuclear counterattack was within a hair's breadth before the error was noticed. In January, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi described a call with Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Mark Milley discussing available precautions for preventing an unstable president from initiating military hostilities. Democrats' efforts to include a minimum wage increase in the $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill seemed all but dead Monday as Senate leaders prepared to begin debate on their own version of the House-passed aid package. Top Democrats have abandoned a potential amendment threatening tax increases on big companies that don't boost workers' pay. Last week, the chamber's parliamentarian said Senate rules forbid inclusion of a straight-out minimum wage increase in the relief measure. The Senate is divided 50-50 between the parties, with Vice President Kamala Harris casting the tie-breaking vote. The overall bill would provide $1,400 payments to individuals plus hundreds of billions of dollars for schools and colleges. The House-approved minimum wage language would gradually raise the federal floor to $15 an hour by 2025, more than double the $7.25 in place since 2009. And the more than 5,800 warehouse workers at the Bessemer, Alabama, Amazon facility who are voting this month on whether to join the retail, wholesale, and department store union got a big boost today from President Joe Biden. Today and over the next few days and weeks, workers in Alabama and all across America are voting on whether to organize a union in their workplace. This is vitally important, a vitally important choice as America grapples with the deadly pandemic, the economic crisis, and the reckoning on race, what it reveals the deep disparities that still exist in our country. And there should be no intimidation, no coercion, no threats, no anti-union propaganda. No supervisor, no supervisor should confront employees about their union preferences. You know, every worker should have a free and fair choice to join a union. The law guarantees that choice, and it's your right, not that of an employer. It's your right. No employer can take that right away. So make your voice heard. 
The mail-in ballot election runs through March 29th and could be the first Amazon warehouse union in the United States if successful. It would also be a major victory for labor organizing in the South, where unions often experience problems organizing. Many Amazon warehouses in Europe operate under union contracts, but the company has fought efforts to unionize their American facilities. In 2014, an attempt to unionize Amazon was defeated, and the company says pro-union workers don't represent the workforce. Biden's support of the organizing drive is in stark contrast to his predecessor, former President Donald Trump, and about 100 people in the southwestern Florida town of Imokali held a vigil to honor Nicholas Morales Besanya, a single father and farm worker who was fatally shot by a Collier County Sheriff's deputy on September 7th. I had always thought, you know, it's not going to happen here. I am absolutely sickened of having to see another, another brown body, another person that looks like me being murdered by the police. This is a human life that was lost and um, we just want justice. You know, that video was so horrific to see and we're just here demanding, you know, action and justice for Nicolas. We are not going to tolerate any of this any longer because beating one of us is beating us all. Two dashboard camera videos were released directly to the internet by the sheriff's department before they were seen by Morales' family. They show cops responding to a call someone was banging on doors. When the three police cars arrived, one officer, Corporal Pierre Jean, within 13 seconds, shot Morales four times in the chest after the man had dropped a shovel and began to run away from the deputies. A police dog then began mauling Morales as he screamed in Spanish, I'm dying. The following audio is disturbing. Hey, don't come over here. Hey, get on the ground. Hey, get on the ground. Get on the ground! Yeah, yeah, I got you. I'm putting it up. Yeah. I got you back. I got you back. You good? Yeah, okay. Morales died that night at a local hospital. Last week, the local prosecutor declined to charge the deputies. A lawyer for the family, Brent Probinski, says he's deciding on the next move. He spoke with WBAI today. Suspect was behind a car, uh, a small man, uh, five foot two, 120 pounds, and came from around the car. Uh, the call that they had was that uh, this man had, was banging on the uh, door with a shovel that he had picked up from in front of the door. It was at one o'clock in the morning. Uh, this man was a resident of the village, farm worker village. He was a farm worker for many years, peaceful man. He was obviously having some sort of mental lapse. Um, there was no a call of any assaults, any uh, uh, armed, uh, any firearms or anything like that, uh, nor did he gain access to the house. So three uh, patrol cars arrive. Orange County Sheriff's Office, two armed deputies, a third armed deputy also with a canine dog. Uh, so this man comes from around the 
back of a car, uh, and they can see him with a shovel. Uh, so one officer has his, his gun trained on him, which is uh, surprising. You know, he's at some distance, and uh, starts yelling at him in English. This is a farm worker village. This is a uh, sheriff's department that has a substation near there. They know everybody speaks Spanish. These are all Hispanic farm workers. Starts yelling at him over and over again in English to get down on the ground while he's pointing the gun at him. Uh, the uh, suspect drops his shovel and begins to walk uh, in front of the officers, sort of uh, lateral to them. There are three of them, and he begins to run. Uh, the officer that's training his gun at him shoots him, shoots at him four times, hits him in the chest three times. Uh, as soon as he's uh, hit and falls to the ground, uh, the officer with the uh, canine shepherd uh, lets the shepherd go. And uh, as he's laying on the ground, uh, bleeding to death, uh, the shepherd starts to maul him uh, and chew him on the shoulder for about a minute. And, and the officer who is, uh, has the canine is just watching this. It's, a hor- it's one of the most horrible things I've ever seen in 30 years as a lawyer. It's absolutely brutal, and it's, I would even say, st- uh, sadistic. The officer who is uh, trained a gun on continues to point the gun at this man who's on the ground, bleeding to death, shot three times, and has a, uh, a dog chewing him up. I mean, what is he afraid of at this point? Uh, the officer to his right, so the officer with a the gun, there's another officer to his right. That officer puts his gun away, had put the gun away uh, some time ago, a few minutes before. And the officer who shoots him says, I was in fear for the life of the officer to my right. The officer to his right was not in fear for his own safety because he put his gun away, put it in his holster. So uh, you know, we're very concerned about the excessive use of force uh, that occurred. We're, we're concerned about the horrible uh, decisions they made uh, to uh, confront this man. They could have used a taser. They could have done a lot of other things other than kill him. Uh, the, uh, it's very disturbing to watch the video and the excessive force that was used, unnecessary excessive force. The uh, state attorney's office uh, in Florida, in this district, is the agency that reviews whether or not there was a crime committed by the uh, uh, sheriff's deputy. They determined last week that it was not. There was no crime committed. So uh, that's where we stand now. Essentially, the the uh, state attorney's office exonerated the officer from committing a crime. The next issues that we confront are whether or not uh, he violated his civil rights uh, under federal law, state law, uh, whether a civil, civil action will lie, or else whether some other agency uh, in the state or in the country uh, wants to look at this and see if his uh, uh, if this officer in fact committed a crime. So that's pretty much where we stand. Attorney Brent Probinski represents the family of Nicholas Morales. And at the vigil Sunday in the farm worker community of Immokalee, Florida, a woman sang this song. Dejando nido y polluelo, un águila alzó su vuelo y se perdió en las alturas, en la infinidad del cielo. Lo que el tiempo se llevó es alguien que yo amo tanto, pero dorado por Dios es la muerte de sus santos. 
In related news, the new Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security is Alejandro Mayorkas. He said today hundreds of migrant children still separated from their parents by the Trump administration may be allowed to reunite with their families in the United States, and some families may have the opportunity to stay. We are hoping to reunite the families either here or in the country of origin. We hope to be in a position uh, to give them the election. And if, in fact, they seek to reunite here in the United States, we will explore lawful pathways for them to remain in the United States and to address the family needs so we are acting as restoratively as possible. Mayorkas called the separation of children from their families the most powerful example of cruelty by the Trump administration, which had pushed to curb immigration. He added about 105 families have already been reunited since Biden took office. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. One of the women who said she was sexually harassed by New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is rejecting his attempt to apologize for his behavior and excuse it as an attempt to be playful. Charlotte Bennett said in a statement released Monday that the Democrat had refused to acknowledge or take responsibility for his predatory behavior. Meanwhile, New York's Attorney General says she's moving forward with an investigation into the harassment allegations after receiving a letter from Cuomo's office Monday authorizing her to take charge of the probe. The referral letter allows Attorney General Letitia James to deputize an outside law firm to conduct the inquiry with full subpoena power. The issue is galvanizing women throughout the country and attracted the attention of groups fighting for workplace equality. The director of the National Organization of Women of New York is Sonia Osorio. Our first initial response after the first allegation was that, first and foremost, there needed to be a clear and protected path for people to report sexual harassment. And that has been something that has dogged workplaces since the beginning of time. And many of them have made great strides. And in fact, it's because of lawsuits and because of laws that have been passed in state legislatures that have made that mandatory, that there is a process that you put in place. How well that works depends on a lot of things. But first and foremost, that has got to be in place or people won't be able to report the abuse. Or as you were saying, they won't feel the confidence that they can do it and it will be taken seriously and that they will be protected from retaliation. That is a very big issue that a lot of people do face is that then they lose their job or they're demoted, or the retaliation starts to kick in. And that is as significant of a workplace impropriety as anything else that takes place. We made sure to to call for that to happen, because that's first and foremost the obligation that supervisors and administrators, whether it's in government, in the Cuomo administration, or in workplaces, have to provide to the people, to their employees. From what we know, do you think the governor mm -hmm. provided those things this time around for the state of New York? That is a question that I think will likely be uncovered just as part of the investigation moving forward into these two allegations. I personally can't tell you for sure. I certainly know that there is a formal policy in place, and I am sure that they do all the things that employers are required to do in terms of training to employees and telling them directly that this is the way that it's done and you report to this person and there's a whole chain of command for it. Culture is very powerful. Breaking down 
if and where that works is another question. And the second statement that we made was that it was important for it to be an independent inquiry. The Cuomo administration has changed course. Yesterday, they did say that there should be an investigation, but they named the person, a federal judge, who should lead it. And they're really not in the position to be saying who should lead the investigation for obvious reasons. And we know today that the attorney general is interested in taking it on. That should give people confidence that an independent investigation will take place. To this bigger question, Paul, about sexual harassment in the workplace, there's not going to be a woman listening who doesn't know somebody that this has happened to, who it hasn't happened to them directly, or who doesn't fear or live their life day to day in the workplace thinking about how to avoid it happening. It's good news that in 2021, across the board, business, government, industries, that there are real rules and regulations in place. Human resources have much more of a focus on it, but it still seems to be a problem. We haven't quite figured out the perfect recipe, the magic to make it go away. This is all tied into our history (laughs) as human beings, as we deal with it every day, whether we're talking about sexual assault, human trafficking. The bottom line is men's, generally men, it certainly um, doesn't exclude women, but it's an entitlement. It's all rooted in society and culture and what still exists too much, that it's male entitlement to women, that it's a sport. We, you still even see it in young boys, that dating and it's conquest. It's still conquest. Sonia Osorio is director of the National Organization of Women of New York. The referral came after a weekend of wrangling over who should investigate his workplace behavior. First, Cuomo's office said it would ask a former federal judge to conduct a probe, then it suggested James and the state's top judge work together to appoint outside counsel to look into the matter. The New York State Senate Budget Committee voted out a measure sponsored by Manhattan State Senator Brad Hoylman titled the Hate Crisis Analysis and Review Act today. The bill will provide a framework for collecting detailed information about hate crimes in the state. It comes after a report that anti-Asian hate crimes have increased by over 900 percent. Legislation I've sponsored with Assemblymember Reyes, which is called the Hate Crimes Analysis and Review Act, passed through the Senate Finance Committee today. And the legislation would impose much-needed reforms on the way we, as a state, collect and release data on hate crimes. Data is going to be a crucial step toward understanding the spike in hate crimes and determining ways to stop it. More policing is not the answer. It's about understanding the problem and countering it at a societal level. This bill would require the New York State Division of Criminal Justice Services to maintain and make public statistical data about hate crimes while expanding data points law enforcement is required to report. And it's going to require the state to issue a standalone hate crimes report based on this data, a more robust analysis of the hate crimes that are occurring in New York State. We need better training of law enforcement and community organizations and the public in general to help identify these types of crimes as soon as they happen. What really concerns me is that while we have this 900% spike from 2019, my hunch and the hunch of experts is that just scratches the surface. So many of these crimes 
go unreported because they're not recognized by law enforcement or members of the community. Frankly, it's a very intimidating thing for so many members of the Asian American community or any minority community, one that's made up of many immigrants to come forward because they fear repercussions. What exactly makes it a hate crime? Uh, It doesn't have to be a violent attack to be a hate crime. It is specific action directed at a subgroup of our population based on the person's racial or ethnic or religious identity. And we understand that it's disturbing in our society. We understand that in many cases, the police fail to not just report these hate crimes, but institute actual standalone recommendations to ensure that hate crimes are adequately reported. In 2020, for example, the NYPD reported 29 racially motivated crimes against Asian Americans in New York City, 24 of which were reportedly motivated by racist misconceptions about COVID-19. And that's a 900% increase from the previous year when there were only about three hate crimes reported. The Stop AAPI Hate Coalition uh, itself has reported 259 anti-Asian incidents in 2020. Most of that is related to verbal abuse or harassment. We saw this past week a young man stabbed in Fuller Square in the shadows of our buildings and statuary that stand for equal justice under the law. Uh, that's a really, uh, and, and on the border of Chinatown, that is a really um, appalling scenario if you think about it that um, that type of crime um, might occur to an individual in the midst of the civic center of Manhattan and New York City. I'm hopeful that this bill gets to the floor of the Senate and we can pass it in the Assembly and take steps to aggressively address these types of crimes. Is saying China virus to somebody or this virus came from China, you're spreading this virus, is that a hate crime? It depends on the context. It could instigate a bias attack. There are First Amendment protections, for better or worse, for that type of language. But we do know, as we saw with Donald Trump in early January, that words can instigate harmful actions. Calling out segments of our community, blaming them for a worldwide pandemic, associating individuals based on something completely out of their control and unrelated to who they are as an individual could be cause for violence. And I think it's something we obviously have to track and understand that language matters, whether it's social media or beaches inciting a riot on our democratic institutions. That can be cause for concern and could be illegal. State Senator Brad Hoylman. An attack on an Asian man Thursday night in Chinatown is being investigated as a possible hate crime. The New York City Police Department says the victim was stabbed at the corner of Worth and Baxter Street. The victim was taken to a nearby hospital. It's not clear what led up to the attack. And that's some of the news for Monday, March 1st, 2021. The news was produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.